0: This is Paul Adamson, and welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of my online magazine, Encompass. I chat informally with personalities from a wide variety of backgrounds on a wide variety of subjects. If you like this podcast, you can go to the magazine's website, encompass-europe.com, or any of the main platforms for free access to all the podcasts to date. I hope you enjoy this conversation. My guest is Ian Dunt. Ian Dunt is a columnist at the i-newspaper, uh, an author. His latest book, How to Be a Liberal, has just come out in paperback. Welcome to the podcast, Ian. Oh, thank you. And, uh, and congratulations on getting to our paperback edition. In this day and age, that it's in itself is quite an achievement. <laughs> <laughs> well, just to t- tell the listeners, you're in paperback edition, at least it is 500 pages long, your new book. So I'm not sure we can do justice to every single page in the next 25 minutes. But let's start with what the book's about. It it tells the story, as you say, of liberalism from its birth in the age of science to its new status as a resistance movement against nationalism. And you start by putting out pointing out the six lies of nationalism. Again, for the benefit of everybody listening, what are these six lies of nationalism? Oh no, I feel like
1: I'm on a test <laughs> for a book that I wrote, it's like, you
0: know, it's been, I, I, I'm not
1: entirely sure I can remember all six. The basic, I mean, the basic idea came where I, I sort of felt, we keep on using this word liberal, and I think we started using it more after 2016, You know, after that sort of double whammy of Brexit and Trump, and, and now living under these governments. But for most of us, you know, you talk to a socialist about, you know, where, where does it come from? And they'll at least be able to name Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. You know, you'd at least have that much. You'd probably get more. With liberalism, if, if you find someone who can mention more than John Stuart Mill, you're doing pretty well. And, 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 but that's not just like a sort of superficial assessment. I sort of feel that's kind of why we got our asses handed to us, you know, because we lost touch with our values and our ideas and where they came from. We forgot to fight for them. There's this thing that happens across the liberal story. It's amazing. It sort of happens really across the sort of 400, 500 years where liberals convince themselves that um, the winds of history blow in their direction. And, you know, just the world will become more rational and more free. And in fact, that's not true. You have to fight for history, as we are discovering right now. History goes backwards as well as forwards. And so as soon as people get seduced by that myth, they stop arguing for their values. They stop arguing for their principles and they become kind of fossilized, very easy to smash away at ease. And I pretty much think that's what happened to us and why I wrote the book. It was like, well, we really do need to remind ourselves of exactly how we got here and what it is that we believe in and why.
0: But is it maybe also the fact that there's there's no kind of agreed or common definition of liberalism? I don't want to get bogged down in a discussion about definition, but it's not so much as it. A question there are different strands of liberalism might, there might be different strands of socialism. It's also that people have different, quite distinct views, different views about what the word means. If you ask an American what the, the word liberal means and a Brit, they give you quite two different answers, no? Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Um, and generally speaking, you know, especially I think in France it's true and here it's true that it refers to kind of right wing economics, essentially, to, to individualism in the sort of economic Frederick Hayek sort of way. And in the US, it sort of speaks to sort of progressive social uh, tolerance, essentially. Um, so that's one confusion. And that confusion is not um, entirely unfair, right? Because liberalism has a tremendous amount of diversity within it. And that diversity is, is not a coincidence. It is not an accident. It, it's a result of the system. And the system is ultimately based. And this you can define it as. And this works across any anything that should have the right to be called liberalism is it is concerned with the freedom of the individual. That is the primary unit of analysis. That is the moral aim of it. And any conclusion that liberalism comes to must ultimately flow from that aim. Now, if you say that, you very quickly, let's say, for instance, in economic terms, but this applies across the scale, you very quickly come up with some really tough choices, right? Like, so one of them is, do you get, does the individual get to keep all their stuff? You know, if we say it's freedom of the individual, does that mean that the government doesn't get to tax you? for instance? Does that mean we just have to leave the market to do whatever it likes without regulation, you know, without any state interference? Or do we say we're going to have to tax the individual and we're going to have to take some stuff from them so that we can make sure that we can, for instance, provide free education, free healthcare for others so that those individuals have the same opportunities as everybody else? Is that what the freedom of the individual entails? So immediately you get this really clear left-right split in liberalism you see all the time now we tend to call the left split social democracy but really I, i call it radical liberalism i think that's what it is we tend to call the right split now we call it neoliberalism or libertarianism we used to call it laissez faire liberalism um so it's sort of in the system that it's always, because it's made up of individuals, because it doesn't have instructions that are passed down on stone tablets, because it is deeply suspicious of leaders and of the hero worship that comes with leaders. It is this kind of boisterous, bubbling, dangerous, provocative thing. And that's why you, people, when they, when they don't consider themselves liberals, just tend to associate the word with whatever it is, whatever part of it it is that they don't like.
0: Well, let's go back to the debate to, to, to And why did you write the book in the first place? Yeah, for that. I mean, I felt like we had lost
1: contact with our principles, with our ideas, and I was kind of mortified by how easily we were defeated and have been consistently defeated over the last few years. You know, we had that confidence in us as if the world would always go our way. That is not what has happened. We kept on finding ourselves. You know, it was amazing. I mean, you, you and I were just discussing before we started recording. That we, I think the last time we met was sort of in the in the year after the Brexit vote. Mm. I mean, this was a period where I don't just mean we're getting our asses handed to us in a broad sense, like in a, you know, sort of system level sense. I mean, individually, you go for debates about, let's say, Brexit, you know, and you say, right, well, look, this is how a customs union operates and you've got to do this. And if you want to leave it, then you've got to. Uh, the people that you fought against would just go, we'll take back control. And they would have that evocative, emotional, easily understood Um, sort of argument to them and they were winning and you just think okay so it's easy to sit there and complain and go why you know they're making stuff up and you know they're not dealing with the complexity of the world and all of that is true but also it's true that liberals weren't arguing with their heart anymore there was this sort of sense that the head and the heart are fundamentally different things as if you know to to be aware of the complexities of the world means that therefore you it's sort of shameful or embarrassing to have emotional arguments right but the truth is You look at what happens when liberalism fails, right? You look at what, I mean, you take, for instance, like what Trump did to the children of immigrants who arrived in the US, putting them in cages, of separating them from their parents, of not even bothering to keep the records of who the parents were so that they could at least put them together afterwards. Like, how is that not an emotional question? You know, if you look at the way that Britain treats immigrants under the hostile environment, what we're doing, you know, in the seas around Britain to try and push refugees, some of the most desperate people away. How is that not an emotional argument? How is it not emotional that when liberalism fails, the people that get hit aren't the elite, no matter what the sort of nonsense propaganda is you get from the other side. They are the most marginalised, the most vulnerable, the poorest people. They're the ones that get hit. They're the ones that are left without a shield. So partly it seems to me that it's because we lost contact with our heart, with our ability to argue with our heart for our principles.
0: Is it part of the problem, though, and you mentioned, of course, uh, Brexit uh, inevitably, that um, on the liberal side, there's a, this this trap that liberals fall into all the time. They've been rather patronising. You talk about people who are the most, the hardest hit by the, the worst extremes of populism, as if they are too, too stupid to understand themselves and they're being duped and only the kind of well-educated middle class liberals know what the score is. And uh, <laughs> somehow they, you know they have all the answers. Isn't that part of the problem? We don't really under, we, we understand maybe the economic impact of populism on the, on poor, on poorer people, but we don't really understand their, their mindsets, what they're going through. I think that that, that
1: question kind of accepts the, the false binary that nationalism spreads, you know, which is that you know, there is the elite and then there's the real people of the country. As if you know everyone that was poor voted Brexit or voted Trump was. In fact, you look at the way that the the voting broke down. That's just not the case, because because in particular the Brexit vote was so tight. You needed yes those sort of left behind towns in the north. Absolutely, you needed them to get over the line. But the majority of the people who voted, you know, from the southeast, relatively well to do, often down the golf club. You know, I, I don't I I don't accept this idea that it's it's only the poor that suffer from this in the first place, or that no one on lower incomes. Tends to believe in this stuff. I mean, when you find, you know, looking at the research from some of the the red wall seats, you know, seats lost from from Labour to the Conservatives, supposedly very socially conservative. You look, and of course, there's lots of socially conservative sort of views there. When you look at the sort of the focus groups, the polling, you also find very liberal views. You know, you look at things like even sort of cannabis legalization. You find you know strong support across the spectrum. You find people have this very sort of nuanced, eccentric bundle of different opinions, some of which are shockingly authoritarian, some of which are shockingly liberal, um, left and right at the same time, you know, critical of their country, but still they love their country. Because why? Because they're individuals. You know, this is one of, I'm starting to remember the lies that I put in the first. (laughs) One of the first lies that they tell is that you're not an individual, right? You're either a member of the elite or you're a member of the people with a capital T and a capital P. That isn't right. We are individuals, and we have this jumble of eccentricities to us that I think the current narrative does nothing to, to, to really make
0: clear. Right. Well, maybe just to take about our list of that. Let me tell you what you wrote about the lies. Very. Briefly. <laughs> the, 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 the first lie is you do not exist as an individual. The second lie is the world is simple. The third lie is that you must not question. The fourth lie is that institutions are engaged in a conspiracy against the public. The fifth lie is that difference is bad and the sixth lie is that there's no such thing as truth. Well, that's the, so now our listeners at least know what your six lies are, okay. That's good,
1: and I've reminded myself, which is the <laughs> crucial part if I'm gonna do more of these interviews.
0: <laughs> right, but seriously, you're saying that, um, that liberals almost like or, or are kind of afraid of, of changing the way they, they see the world. And I just wonder whether you talk about the, the issue of complacency amongst liberals, or maybe even fear. You talk about you know there has there is a resistance movement now against nationalism. So in a sense, liberals, if we can broadly, for the sake of this argument, agree on a broad definition of what liberalism is and liberals are, they have to get engaged. Otherwise, nationalism will prevail.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And what I mean, and look, we we can see. Look, you look at what's happened in the U.S. Now, the last few weeks have not been great with Biden, and I think the foreign policy now we're starting to see has kind of ingested and will retain a certain element of sort of America first, you know, you guys do what you like, but this is what we're doing. However, domestic, so we have to think at the moment, I'm thinking of Biden almost as two separate people when it comes to foreign and when it comes to domestic, when it comes to domestic, though, what have you seen? First of all, we've seen these guys are beatable. You can beat them and you don't have to beat them by using, by aping nationalist rhetoric. That is not how Biden won that election. They did it by committing, first of all, to, Keynesian economics to an idea that, no, the state is going to get involved in the market again, that we are going to try and help people. We're not going to leave behind communities when we feel that the economics has shifted away from them. And he's now passing sort of upwards of a um, trillion dollar stimulus pretty much every month. You know, he's become very confident with those things and has a tremendous amount of support for it. And it also worked because you saw an element of cooperation between liberals and marginalized groups racially in terms of gender in terms of sexuality a commitment to groups that it had too long kind of ignored and, and not really paid enough attention to and you don't really see that degree of cooperation in the uk but you are seeing it in the us and also between the left and, and liberalism um, so we have examples of how it can work when we look to our own to my own country anyway i see Protest movement. I mean, of course, the protest movements stay in the EU, but also, you know, the protest movement that erupts when a Parliament was prorogued against its will. When the push that we see against the more draconian measures that are adopted, for instance, on the policing bill, which recently tried to silence protests in the UK and the Priti Patel. Now, I see this is a vibrant movement of people who know what their principles are. They know what they want to achieve. It is there and it is demonstrably winnable.
0: You say that the, the rise of nationalism did not start with the electoral success of its political parties. It started with the assertion of nationalist framing. Its assumptions and values slowly became the assumptions of the mainstream conversation. I just wonder where, what came first, more mainstream political parties uh, taking, you know, acquiring the clothes of nationalists or actually, pub, you know, the public at large uh, engaging with that kind of conversation and the political parties just aping that.
1: Well, there's always, I mean, look, it's certainly in the UK, there's about a quarter of the public who are sort of proper nationalists. I mean, they may not be ideological in it, but as you poll it, you find consistently like very, very strong views against immigration, against diversity. You've got about a quarter of the public that are there. And I'm speaking in rough terms, but you look at poll after poll, it backs this up. You've got about a quarter of the public are very, very sort of strongly liberal. You know, they want sort of free movement, they want open borders, they value diversity for its own sake, etc., etc. Um, and the rest of the people were there to, be, to go one side or the other. right? And at certain times, they can be swung in one direction or another. Now, what I think we saw, and we've seen it across Europe, um, was nationalist figures. You take Farage in the UK. They're invited on to, who for years was diligently banging away before he managed to secure his revolution. They're invited into TV studios. We're told, I mean, I was often the person who would be arguing against a figure like that back in the day. And the journalists at the time were kind of embarrassed. Oh, you know, we've got to have these guys on. And, but we asked them the tough questions. But actually, what questions were they asking? They're asking, essentially, when you look at most of these interviews, it was treating immigration as a problem. That was the starting assumption. So what is the solution? Or you treat the EU or international institutions in the US, it's very much the WTO that that gets most of this flack, as, you know, kind of an infringement on sovereignty, interfering in democracy. That's sort of a baseline assumption. So what is it that we do about it? And that's where the debate takes place within the nationalist frame. And partly that was a liberal responsibility of not going out there to make the point, not just in TV studios, radio studios, but by the water cooler, you know, at the dining room table, on the high street, in the pub of not being prepared to have those arguments, of doing it quietly in courtrooms, in the civil service, you know, in lobbying of ministers. So partly the suffered, but also partly it was that mainstream broadcasters took on those nationalist framings. And once that happened, they became the most compelling person to fix the problems which were now universally, under consensus, decided were problems. That was what you saw with Salvini in Italy. That was what you saw with Farage here, over and over that same god-awful churn
0: so in a sense we're guilty as mainstream people whoever we are of, of misinterpreting and what the, what the problem is and, and being complacent as an outcome of that in the sense that we can say great ukip and the brexit party is now is now a shadow of its former self marine le pen you know she always comes quite close but never really prevails every 5 years when the election in france uh, afd didn't have not doing very well in germany at the moment but the, 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 their real success as you're suggesting is they they, they influence and, uh the mainstream parties and the part the mainstream parties take on their, their clothes and, and gain electoral success on the back of it.
1: Is that what you're saying? Well, it depends on the country, right? So you take something like Salvini. I mean, in Salvini's case, no. I mean, they, they got into government. He was able to enact it. You saw an attempt by the center-right in Italy to emulate him um, and to sort of take on those policies. I mean, by the time that Salvini got into power, I mean, alongside Five Star, um, there wasn't much left for him to do with the boats. They'd mostly been stopped anyway, predominantly by the EU, actually by figures, frankly, like Merkel, who had a chief role in that. And what I think was probably the most immoral moment in the EU's history, which is really coordinating with Libya to turn it into a prison camp where they could push back the boats and with Erdogan in, in Turkey. Hmm. So absolutely, you see it in, in that respect. Sometimes they get into government on that basis. Very often... It comes just because they're sort of absorbed into the mainstream party. I would suggest that that's what's happened to the Conservative Party in Great Britain, that it is not the Conservative Party anymore. It is essentially the euclipisation of the Conservative Party, that that process began under Theresa May and was concluded by Boris Johnson when he purged the remaining moderates and One Nation Tories from the Parliamentary Party.
0: Well, without hyping the discussion, is there a real concern that the, the, the liberal West, to use that vague phrase, is becoming less liberal then? Oh, I think you see that all over the place. I mean, I mean you see it
1: re- repeatedly all over the place. Um, I mean, in fact, you, you could almost look now, I mean, take the British political landscape, you know, where, where is Labour's position on liberal values? It's almost too scared to express them most of the time because it knows that's where it needs to get its voters back. So you will see that happen again and again. There are other countries where, you know, have managed to hold firm. The US at the moment is, is, is ex- because I think Trump was so grotesque, is experiencing a flip back where you sort of almost proudly define yourself as, as the opposite of that. Um, but certainly we're seeing a retreat from those values. And if you look at, you know, that the stuff that Barnier is putting out, I mean, after spending five years thinking Barnier was doing a pretty good job on Brexit, to so now watch him. That is yeah. a, a very clear example of just trying to ape and yeah. emulate the sort of nationalist rhetoric that just, you know, morally abysmal, but even on his own terms, you're just like, you, you're surely not convincing anyone. You can't possibly believe that you can do this better than they can do.
0: Yeah, When you mentioned the Labour Party, and without making this too much of a procedural discussion, because your book does cover the, what, the entire universe. Um, they they're stuck in this bind, aren't they? Because they, they don't know how to to get out of this, this trap of being seen as uh, uh, not woke enough. This whole debate we're talking maybe too much so far about economics. The Labour Party doesn't, and maybe the left more broadly does not know how to handle the woke agenda.
1: I don't like the word woke. I just basically have decided it means nothing, that it has no okay. meaning it. It's sort of used as an abuse. I, I just don't even, it doesn't have a meaning. So I avoid it. And um, look, throughout liberal history, there's been an acknowledgement of belonging. And belonging matters to liberals not as a, as a sort of separate unit. It matters because wherever you are in history, whatever place, whatever time, people care about it. They care about, and sometimes it's expressed through religion or through a local area, through regional identity. Sometimes, very often since the sort of creation of nation State, it's, it's expressed through that medium. People care about it. And what matters to the individual must matter to liberalism. Now, we have known liberal theory that it can be used to oppress, that it can be used mostly to enforce conformity to suggest that if you are British, you are this, you are of one type. And if you're not, you know, if, you're, if you're an immigrant, if, if, if you, know, you have liberal view, that, oh, then you're, you know, you're an elite. You're, you're from outside of what is termed the people. We know that it's used that way. And it you know, was used that way very heavily I mean, in the most pernicious period for liberalism, which is really you know, the area of, sort of Soviet and Nazi ascendance. That's exactly how that process operated. So liberalism's response was to say, if belonging matters because it matters to the individual, Belonging must be mediated by freedom. but It is your personal relationship with where you're from. It's plural, it's diverse, it's an individual love affair. Probably the best people for this were George Orwell, who was very, very good at expressing exactly how this relationship operated. And weirdly enough, Isaiah Berlin, both writing sort of roughly the same kind of times in England, Isaiah Berlin, not from England, and he was from Riga. Uh, but always felt like he fitted in in England, but felt a bit like an outsider. George Orwell was from England, but never quite fitted in in England and always felt like an outsider. And these two men working in very different ways really explored that notion of what it is to have liberal identity, of a liberal sense of belonging. And right now, Keir Starmer is tasked with that in electoral terms, you know, with trying to be able to express a vision. And look, he's had a rough time of it, It's been very quiet for him. It's very hard in the middle of a pandemic to get that kind of purchase as an opposition leader. However, the central ideas, the way that he's looking at them, I think most of the ideas he's expressing are quite sound. He should be better at promoting them, should be probably more evocative in the manner in which he communicates them. Mm. But the central manner in which he's doing it and the project itself, I, I think are quite sound.
0: Maybe a final question then, uh, Ian. Do you think that the genius, if one can say that, of Boris Johnson and his government is to capture the kind of the or as a zeitgeist, uh, socially um, conservative, economically liberal, uh, the levelling up agenda, the the very clever, you know, manipulation if you like of the identity politics agenda. If that's part of his uh, his success, isn't it? Yeah, I definitely
1: wouldn't use the word genius. Um they stumbled <laughs> across. Uh, <laughs> A really viable electoral coalition. And I think they primarily stumbled across it, you know, during the referendum campaign, by virtue of Dominic Cummings, who's now, you know, public enemy number one for the Johnson administration, but that's how they stumbled across it. And they they suddenly thought, well, actually, we can, if, if it is about culture now, rather than economics, we can, we can make this thing work. I don't accept that their economics is left wing when you actually, I mean, they say, I mean, their sloganeering is, they say leveling up, there's never any policies behind this. Leveling up is now, as of as of yesterday, it's one of the five briefs that have been handed to Michael Gove. He is in charge of leveling up, housing, saving the union, <laughs> um, ensuring that Christmas happens, and a variety of other. He's just think, okay, so it's it's a fifth of a ministerial brief. That's what you've done with it. There's no policy behind it whatsoever. In fact, when you look at the economics, you know, when you look at what they're doing with social care by funding it essentially to protect. The houses of really quite wealthy people by taking money of young people on low incomes through national insurance. That is, there's no, there's no basis upon which anyone could describe this as left wing. What they've really done is stumbled across a way of keeping the political conversation on culture, on culture wars. And on that basis, in an age of sort of online information, you can maintain for quite some time. Quite how long is another matter. And I think when you look at the polling, Look how volatile, how trembling the polling is, how quickly he loses, even very, very strong. I mean, he lost 20 points, you know, over, over the, after the election when, when COVID first came out. It's very volatile, and I don't know how long that trick's going to last for him. My personal hope is it doesn't last very long at all.
0: Well, on that note, we have to leave it there. It's been great talking to you, Ian Dunn. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, sir.